Okay, uh, let's take our Bibles tonight and go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter number 1. 1 Samuel and chapter number 1. We're not going to spend much time here tonight in 1 Samuel as we get started even in a new series. Uh, find your place also, I meant to mention this, Psalm 78. Psalm 78. So 1 Samuel chapter 1 and then also... Psalm 78. Mentioned the Hales being here. Didn't mention they were missionaries in Portugal. So I know most know that, but some may wonder, well, where are they missionaries? So glad they could be here with us tonight. Okay, so we're starting a new series here uh, in 1 Samuel. Been looking forward to this and as we can uh, get into it. And so I think uh, this Psalm 78, as I looked at it and gave consideration, I think it'll give us the right place to start, even though it'll be a little bit of a, I guess you could call it a soft start into the actual book of 1 Samuel, but I think you'll see the connection as we look at it. So let me direct your attention to verse number three, verse number three of chapter one, 1 Samuel. And this man talking about um, Elkanah, this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts. Notice this, in where? Shiloh. Okay, he went to sacrifice there, went to worship there in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. So now if you know the story, many of you are familiar with the first, Sam, first Samuel, uh, you know that Hophni and Phinehas weren't right with God. They, they were not. They were, they, were, they were priests, but they were ungodly. Okay, turn to chapter 4, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, and verse number 4. All right, so Elkanah and Hannah, we're going to learn about them in, in a coming message. <clears throat> but they went yearly to sacrifice, to worship in Shiloh. Um, if we took time, we could look at chapter two and chapter three to see that Samuel, the child, you know, is going to be devoted to God and grown and raised and mentored by Eli, Hophni and Phinehas' dad. But Samuel would be the one groomed and helped along to become the priest and prophet of Israel. And he did that in Shiloh, right? Shiloh. Chapter four and verse four. So the people sent, all right, now the context here is where they're about to fight the Philistines. And so the people sent to Shiloh. You see that? There it is again. I wonder if Shiloh is important. Hopefully you're getting the idea that it is here early on. Uh, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence. Notice this the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. What, what item of the tabernacle would be of greater significance than the, than the Ark? There would be none of greater significance than the Ark. All are significant, but the Ark represented God's presence. The Israelite thinking at this point was, well, if we get the Ark and we bring that into battle, God won't let himself get captured. That was their mentality, all right? Um, I realize we're just kind of jumping in the deep end here, but isn't that the best way to get in the pool? Right? Just jump in. All right. Um, so that's what we're looking at here. Um, 
Ark of the Covenant out of Shiloh, which dwelleth between the cherubims. Notice this, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And, and you read the rest of the account here. Obviously, the Philistines were terrified of that prospect and yet defeated the Israelites and, and took captive or took the Ark of the Covenant. And so when Eli heard that, he fell backwards and died. And uh, Phineas's wife, who was with child, went into premature labor, uh, delivered the child, but would die in childbirth and named the son Ichabod. Kavod, kavod uh, is the word, the Hebrew word that means glory, kavod. So Ichabod means no glory. No glory. And she didn't even mourn the passing of her husband. Well, this is a great way to start a new series. So let's go to chapter 78, or sorry, Psalm 78. And I don't know that you'll need to mark your Bible there in 1 Samuel. I've got some other verses, but I think we can just refer to them as we get started here tonight. <clears throat> this is a psalm of Asaph. It's probably in the early days of David's ministry, David's uh, role as king. Um, I don't think it goes beyond that because it just kind of stops with David. So let's look at this here right quick. Give ear, verse 1, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children that they might set their hope in God, watch this now, and not, and not forget the works, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Everybody see that? He's saying, listen, we've got to tell these stories, these accounts again, true historical uh, accounts. We've got to tell them to the next generation so they know who God is, know what God has done, and so they don't forget. All right, now, some of you were here when Brother Sam preached through the Kings and the Prophets years ago. But it won't, it won't hurt us again to go back through the Kings and the Prophets because we need it. A new generation needs to know. A new generation. Man, this is exciting right here. All right. Okay, hey, uh, while you're still standing, let's uh, go to the very end of the psalm. Long psalm. And uh, verse 55. Verse 55 is about what happened during the days of Joshua. He cast out the heathen also. Uh, prior to that, it's talking about Egypt and the deliverance um, at the time of the Passover and the Red Sea and all those things. Don't forget that. He cast out the heathen also, verse 55, before them and divided them in an inheritance by line and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. I mean, everything was going great. It was, it was wonderful. Yet... Yet, 
They tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimonies, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. What, what period of time do you think we're in right here when we're reading this? Judges. Judges, right after Joshua. Judges. They turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel so that, verse 60, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. There it is. Do you see it? Everybody see it? We read about it in 1 Samuel. Here it is in this account. He forsook, God forsook, Am I reading this right? He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among them. Notice this, verse 61, and delivered his strength into captivity. The idea is there is that he delivered the symbol of his strength, namely the ark into captivity and his glory, again, the symbol of his glory, the ark, into the enemy's hands. He gave his people over also unto the sword and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given, in, given to marriage. Their priest fell, I, I believe that's a reference to Hophni and Phinehas and, and others, fell by sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then, hang on, wait a minute, just, just when you think, all right, this is bleak, this is bad, this is, it's over. It's over. How many times have you thought it was over for Israel? It's over. They've gone too far. It's over. Notice this verse. Then the Lord awaked. It wasn't over. Then, oh, I like that. Then the Lord, he awaked as one out of sleep. <laughs> you ever wake your dad out of sleep and he wasn't ready to get awaked out of sleep? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. In other words, it's in full strength. And when, I'm sorry, and, and he smote his enemies in the hinder parts and he put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he, notice this, this is all First Samuel stuff here. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, that'd be in the north, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, the larger, more predominant, more popular, powerful tribe. He did not choose what would be the logical choice among many uh, in Israel, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he established forever, forever. And notice this, he chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young. He brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. He, so he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. I'm telling you, friend, listen, they still had revival. They didn't deserve it, but God sent them a revival. So this series, all right, I know we took a little bit of time, you're standing to read some scripture, but here's this new series. I think it's right for us to consider it at this juncture in our nation's history, as well as within our church, 
When a nation needs revival, when a nation needs revival, what did God do when a nation needed revival? And thus, what is God doing when a nation needs revival? So tonight, the first sermon here is going to be this, playing into the enemy's hand, playing into the enemy's hands. How many, how many of you have heard that terminology before? You played right into the enemy's hands. Yeah, I think we all maybe at some point have heard that, used that. Playing into the enemy's hands. May God bless the reading of his word and the preaching. Thank you. I mentioned this morning that um, we started in the Old Testament book of Genesis uh, 2010 and just kept moving right through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth on Sunday mornings. Hey, we just covered 11 years in that amount of time of Sunday mornings. Chose to shift that series to the nighttime and Matthew in the morning. And so I'm, I'm thankful the Lord led that way for several reasons. But when we left off, the reason I, I, want, I want to spend a little, little time here in effort to uh, pick up where we left off, in the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, uh, because we won't really appreciate or understand what's going on in 1 Samuel if we don't make that very, very important Old Testament connection. The book of Judges left Israel in a very bleak situation. I mean, you can just tell it. The last verse of the book, so there was no king in Israel and every man did that which right is in his own eyes. That's not a good way to end. In fact, I thought about it this way. If Judges were the last book of the Old Testament, if... If it were their last book of the Old Testament, you might assume Israel assimilated into all the other nations and that was their end. I mean, you have Benjamin that because of their sinful ways of, of life were nearly wiped out, obliterated, down to 600 men and, and there wasn't, and, and they vowed also not to give them any of their women from the other tribes so that they might carry on. I mean, it's bad. It's real bad. It's bad. You'd think it was done. You'd think it was over and you'd have good reason to think that most likely they became non-existent. In fact, I often quoted Daniel Block through our series in Judges. And so I, I do so again tonight to say this, that as he said, by the time we reach the end of the book of Judges, the Israelites about whom we read are scarcely distinguishable from the Canaanites whom they were supposed to replace. In other words, they were just like the Canaanites. You couldn't, if, if you had an Israelite here and a Canaanite here, you'd have a hard time telling the difference. It's kind of like this. If you had a, a contemporary Christian music label here and a, and a secular rock music label here, you wouldn't tell a whole lot of difference today. You just look about the same. 
Same dress, same dark overtones, same. He went on to say this, God is far more interested in preserving his people than his people are in preserving themselves. God is far more interested in preserving Southwest Baptist Church, not as a museum. We are not artifacts. Okay? This is not like throwback church. This is not prehistoric church. This is not, no, this is an independent fundamental Baptist church that Jesus started out of churches that started churches. No, we are not to be something of the past, a relic. No, we are supposed to be something that is strong that's going forward. And God's interested in that. He's interested in preserving more than we're interested even sometimes in preserving ourselves. The book of Judges describes a nation in transition and in crisis. I think today, friend, it would be easy to make the case that we're in transition in, in the United States of America and we are in crisis. In spite of ethnic and religious unity, the nation seemed determined, Mr. Block said, the nation of Israel seemed determined to destroy itself. That sure seems like our country seems determined to destroy itself as well. My dad was a Dallas Cowboys fan, but oftentimes I heard my dad say along the way, they're beating themselves. They're determined to lose this game. And they did. So anyways, well, I wasn't a fan. Anyways, all right. Israel seemed determined to destroy themselves. In many ways, I, I want to present this tonight in, in a few fashions and just helping us to get started. I've asked the Lord to help us to, to do that. But I really believe that Israel played into the enemy's hand. And I'm afraid that too many Christians are playing right into the enemy's hand. And there's a second verse to that that I want to try to get to by the end of this message, but they played right in two. I, we read about it. That's the reason I had you go to chapter four of 1 Samuel to see, see even ahead of time. I mean, we're going to take some time to build back into that, but, but they played right into their hand. I mean, really, they played right into the Philistines' hand. I mean, you would even think, okay, well, God's going God's to defeat the Philistines because there's the ark. But no, they played right into their hand. And, and even the Philistines didn't realize how good it was going to be. It played right into their hand. What does that mean? Well, if you look that up, that, that idiom means, means this. Uh, to do something that one does not realize will hurt oneself and help someone else. Everybody get that? To play into the enemy's hand. Let me read it again just in case somebody dozed off right there. To play in the enemy's hand means this. To do something that one does not realize will hurt oneself and help somebody else. Now, I've done that countless of times playing checkers. I did not realize as I was playing my grandmother, whom I never beat playing checkers, I did not realize how that, that move that I thought was going to be to my advantage was actually to her advantage. I hurt myself. Right? Done that playing chess. I've done that several other contexts. But, but here, listen, in, in, in uh, our Christian lives, there are ways and there are times in which that, that we do things that we do not realize, sometimes we don't even realize how it is hurting you and it's going to the advantage of your enemy. Now what we ought to do is be alert to those things. 
A man named A.R. Fawcett said this, it is not our being in the world, talking about the church and churches, it is not our being in the world that ruins us, but our suffering the world to be in us. Just as ships sink, not because they are in the water, but because water got into the ship. Everybody hear that? That ship didn't go down because it was floating in the water, but that ship went down because, because more water got into the ship. Hey, when a Christian marriage goes down, it's not because the rough waves of our nation. No, it's because they took on subtly, in some way, more forms of the world's mentality about this, and it went down. A Christian doesn't go down because we're living in the world. Hey, listen, I know you know this. We are living in a wicked, twisted, perverted society, but that will not be your demise. It won't be your demise unless you start taking on water and you don't do a thing about it. Then you'll go down. G. Campbell Morgan said the church did mo the most for the world when the church was least like the world. We do the most for the world. How are we going to help the world? Well, we'll do the most for the world when we're the least like the world. And I, and I realize, folks, I realize I'm, I'm preaching on something that I really I preached on even this morning. And, and God, I think, just kind of orchestrated that and worked it out that way. And I know I'm preaching on something that, that people that have been a part of Southwest have heard how many sermons about this, that we ought not be like the world. And, 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 and so I, I realize that. But listen, folks, what we need to understand is that there's something in us that likes what's in the world. And that could easily creep into our lives and if into our lives and into our families and into our families and into the church and if into the church, then we begin to become ineffective because we're no different than the world that's around us. I remember Brother Bill Marshall telling in a, in a sermon, I heard him preach at, at Brian Baptist Church in Springfield as he was visiting there as an evangelist and he was preaching about how that somebody said, preacher, why, why don't you preach a message sometimes on love? It's always about, you know, sin and how that we, uh, you know, we ought to live a separated life and said, why can't you preach a message on love? And so he said, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to preach a message on love. And he had everybody turn to 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 15, love not the world and the things in the world and I thought, man, that's good stuff. There's your message on love. Love not the world. Christians become ineffective because we're more like the world. Uh, listen to this. This is from this morning. I didn't, I didn't quote it, so I'm quoting it now. John Stott said this, the influence of, of Christians in society depends on our being distinct, not being identical. Amen. Our influence on the world is not dependent on us being identical, but rather it's on us being distinct. Yes. I don't like to stand out. I'm glad our Savior stood out. And He's called us to stand out. Our young people... I'm going to be very much like the young men that we heard about this morning in Daniel 3. They're going to have to take a stand when everybody around them is bowing. And the social pressure that is there. I mean, big time social pressure, real social pressure. 
Let me run this by you as well while we're at it. John Stott also said this, we, we serve neither God nor ourselves nor the world by attempting to obliterate or even, or even minimize the difference between us and the world. We're not serving God by trying to make ourselves more like the world. We're not even serving ourselves by doing that. And we're certainly not serving the world by doing that. He said the greatest tragedy in churches has been the constant tendency to try to blend in with the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counter culture. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to blend in with the prevailing culture, but we are called to develop Christian, Christ-like, spirit in every other way, counter culture. It's salt and it's light. Because otherwise, if we don't, we're playing right into the enemy's hand. See, we need to understand tonight that the children of Israel, they had a strong start. Under Joshua, they had a strong start. But a strong start does not guarantee a strong finish. What will Southwest Baptist Church be in 50 years? Oh, I hope it's no different than it is right now. Except just with new people. And some young people now that are old people. And some of you will be in heaven. <laughs> and you'll run your race. Your race will be run by then. Maybe Jesus will come back before we hit another 50 years. But if he does not, if he tarries his coming out of his mercy and his grace, then what kind of church will Southwest, church, Southwest Baptist Church be? In many ways, it's determined what we do week by week. How did Israel get in such a mess? How in the world did they get to a place where they were sacrificing children to the gods of Canaan? How? I mean, really, stop and think about that just a minute. And, and worshiping stones and wood, how did they get there? I think it's a fair question to ask, how did we get to the place in the United States of America where we're aborting so many and murdering so many babies? You know how they, they, got, they got there because the... Uh, the, the, the temples that were there in Canaan, a lot of them were uh, in the honor of fertility gods and they had temple prostitutes. And I mean, they just made it convenient that, that the sexually impure life was just accepted in their society and, and then you can, you can get rid of the child because it's an inconvenience. How are we different? When you think about the moral fiber of the cross section of America. And in what way are we any different? So how in the world did we get there? Well, well, maybe we ought to deal with how did they get there? Did they start committing fornication right off the bat? Did adultery and, and all and drunkenness and 
I mean, was it that that happened? When did it happen? Did, was it after Joshua was off the scene or was it while he was still on the scene? If you remember from our study of Judges and, and into, into Joshua, then you might remember that actually chapter one and verse number 19 was a very pivotal verse in the book of Judges, not because it says that they started worshiping the false gods of the land, nor because they started committing immorality. No, it was neither of the above. Here's what it was. They came up against people that had chariots of iron and they, they, they did not fight them. They, in their eyes, they determined they could not win that battle. And so here's what they did when they faced something they could not handle. They stopped fighting the battle. And when they stopped fighting the battle, then they started making, hang on, they started making accommodation for the people of the land and the people they were supposed to conquer, they began to compromise with them and they let them live in the land when they were supposed to be eradicated from the land and they got more and more comfortable with the Canaanites and began to rub shoulders more and more with them and thus they began to lose their distinction. But it was basically because of this, they stopped fighting the battles. You say, preacher, why, why are you really emphasizing that? Well, because listen, even every Sunday as we gather here, we are in a spiritual battle. And I'm not just saying that to get amens. I'm saying that because we are really in a legitimate battle. And every Sunday we battle for the honor of God. And every Sunday we battle for, for godly music. And every Sunday we battle to sing it in a godly way so that it does not become routine. And we stand opposed to the evil ways of life that try to encroach upon here. And we can get to thinking, oh, the, the tidal wave that is coming this way, we're no match for it. Just like they did with the errant chariots of iron. But I, listen, our God has a record of handling chariots. He buried a bunch of them under the sea at the Red Sea and he made a bunch of them get stuck in the mud in the days of Joshua. Our God knows how to handle things. We just need to keep following him and don't think that there's any battle that our God can't handle and we just need to keep fighting the battle and keep fighting the battle. Keep fighting the battle for the Bible. Keep fighting the battle for, for preaching. Keep fighting the battle for Baptist distinctives. Keep fighting the battle for modesty. Keep fighting the battle for morality. Keep fighting the battle for biblical, biblical marriage and biblical family. Families, just keep fighting the battles and, and let God give us the strength in the midst of those battles because otherwise we end up just like Israel did. Amen. A church that's blended more with worldliness than it is with righteousness. What they began to permit began to define them. And what you permit in your individual Christian life will begin to define you. They became permissive. A lack of involvement in God's will led to a an increase of involvement outside of God's will. Uh, everybody hear that? You say, man, Southwest Baptist Church, it's a busy church. Well, amen. Thank you for the compliment. And I realized, hey, like the, like, the, like the church in Ephesus, we could get busy and not really be in love with the Lord, and that's a problem. 
That's a problem. And, and Jesus rebuked the church of Ephesus for being very busy in the ministry. And even though they were doctrinally sound and they stood for those things and they fought the battles, they left their first love. And listen, friend, our business for Jesus and serving him by way of local church ministry, which I think if you look, well, hang on just a minute. If you look at the churches in the book of Acts, would you, could you make a case that they were indeed busy churches? Daily in the temple, daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. In other words, they were busy about this matter of soul winning. They were busy about this matter of discipleship. They were busy. They were seeing people added to the church every week, every day. They saw people baptized. I'm telling you, it was a busy church. Here, here where the problem comes in. When you get in your mind, you let the enemy start to come in and say, you know, you're too busy at that church. You need to take a little bit of time off. You need to back away from being so busy and serving the Lord. And what happened is you're not going to sit there in neutral because your heart's going to gravitate and you're going to be busy about something else and that something else may not necessarily be a bad thing and and, and I'm, I'm all for I'm, I'm for the balance I'm understanding that I, I understand the place of of hobbies that don't dishonor God but I, but I am concerned when God's people are not engaged in serving God like they used to because then they get more engaged in the world's activities and it may be even an okay kind of thing but the more you get engaged here where does that lead next so a lack of involvement in God's work led to an increased involvement in their own work. That was a major factor. And then they became less and less loyal to their identity as Israel. They didn't refer to themselves as the children of Israel as much. I'm just saying to you that you and I have a, a wonderful label that has been passed down to us in the name Baptist. And we ought not be ashamed of that. And, and you say, well, that terminology, independent, fundamental, that comes with some baggage. It comes with some wonderful baggage. It comes with some wonderful heritage. You say, yeah, but there's some in that independent fundamental Baptist and they're like hypocrites and, and they're mean-spirited. Yes, there are, but there's also hypocrites in the evangelical movement, all the other movements, and there's people with some really mean spirits everywhere. So just deal with it. But, but the fact that we operate independently means something. The fact that we are fundamental means something. And the fact that we are Baptist means something. And the fact that we are a church means something. And so let's not get away from those labels. Let's embrace those labels and thank God for who we are. They got in trouble because they, they forgot who they were. And, and, they, and then this, and then this, hang on. Then there was conflicts between the tribes. And conflicts between the tribes left them, left them wide open for the attack of the enemy from the outside. I'm saying to you here tonight that, listen, we better be careful because there could be conflicts between the tribes. There could be conflicts between members. And when we, there could be conflict between husband and wife and parent and children and, and, and conflict between families. I know I preach this often because, you know why I preach this often? Because what we have been given to us is so special by God. It's given to us by the Lord in, in the form of unity. And we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. I wonder what endeavoring looks like. Well, I think it looks like we try real hard at it. Conflict began to divide them. And, and, and then this, a lack of spiritual leadership resulted in a drift in the wrong direction. A lack of spiritual leadership. I'm talking about the book of Judges. I, I haven't forgotten that we're, we're going to the, the book of 1 Samuel, but, but you need to understand how they got to the place where they thought, let's take the Ark of the Covenant in like a good luck charm. Let's, let's take God in. No, 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 no. You don't tell God what to do, friend. 
And when I read the Bible and I see, in fact, even David understood that. As he tried to bring the ark into Israel the, the wrong way, Uzzah paid a price for it. Because listen, you don't tell God what to do. God tells you what to do. And, and so God proved himself strong because no doubt the Philistines said, oh, look, their God, their God's weaker than our God because we whooped them on the battlefield. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. If, I, they didn't say, huh. <laughs> but I guarantee you that's how they were feeling until Dagon was flat on his face and his hands were broke off. Why? Because they messed with God. And so God vindicated himself and God always will. God who is God will. You don't have to defend him. You just need to trust him and, and just get behind what he's doing. But when you read your Bible, they didn't tell the ark where to go. God told them where to carry the ark. See, they got it all mixed up. And, and so there was a lack of leadership there and, and, and the godly leaders were hard to find. And watch this, the leaders that did rise up in the days of, of the judges. In fact, there, in fact it, was, it was this way. Men weren't standing up, so women had to. I'm thankful for the influence of ladies in this church family and in homes and in teaching Sunday school classes and in every way, ladies, that you're involved. But I'm telling you, God did not, God did not design his church nor the family to be, to be led by, by ladies. Regardless of how it's looked on in the world today, it's still in the Bible and, and we're not to let feminism and, and the mentality there to affect our thinking. And, and, and I'm thankful for how God used Deborah and how God used others in the Bible like Hannah and different ones. But, but listen, where's the man? Where's the man? How did they get to the place where they were? Well, men weren't in their place. They were not in their place. And as a result of that, a major drift began to happen. And watch this. And then those that did stand up, even like some that we admire and sometimes, but then you kind of, you're like scratching your head at other times like Gideon, what's he doing right there? Well, Gideon was affected by the culture that was around him. Jephthah was affected by the culture that was around him. And who here could build a case otherwise, but that Samson, the poster child of Israel, certainly was more affected by the culture around him than the God that was above him. God's warrior by day and Satan's by night. I'm telling you, Samson's is a mess. And so even the, the, even the leaders that stood up to help lead became more of the problem than part of the solution because they were more like the world than they were like God's people. Okay. There's a dearth of spiritual leaders in our land today. Nearly every week we have calls to this church and to the Bible college saying, could you recommend somebody to be a pastor? We need a pastor. We've been a year without a pastor. We've been three years without a pastor. Everybody listen to this. There's a need for, for pastors. I see signs around the city that says linemen needed or nurses needed, and no doubt they are. But I, I just want to put a sign out tonight to say there's pastors that are needed and youth pastors and song leaders that are needed, and then there's a dearth. And then some that rise up to be leaders turn out to be more like the world than they are like, the, like God wants them to be and they become more of a problem to the churches and a problem to colleges than what they are a help. The underlying issue here was this. They rejected God's authority for their own. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. God's already warned us about that. Would you listen to these verses out of Deuteronomy 12? He says, you shall not do after the things that, 
Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, every man which is right in his own eyes. God said, don't do that. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. He said things like this, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. Be not wise in thine own eyes, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 7. He said things like this, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. He said things like this, all the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. You say something like this, well, I don't see what's wrong with it. I don't see what's wrong. I don't see what's wrong with CCM. I don't see what's wrong with drinking. I don't see what's wrong with smoking. I don't see what's wrong with marijuana being sold everywhere or over the corner. There's more, there's more marijuana dispensaries in Oklahoma City than there are churches. I haven't done the math, but all you got to do is just drive. Sure seems like for sure there's more independent, there's more, there's more marijuana dispensaries than there are Bible preaching churches. That's easy to make a case of. And then sometimes somebody might say, well, there's too many churches here. Well, as soon as we get rid of all these dispensaries, maybe we can move forward and move some of them out. But until then, we're overrun with sin and wickedness. Rejection of God's authority and in favor of your own will be the underlying cause of your collapse if you collapse. I want to run that by you one more time, young people. A rejection of God's authority in favor of your own will be the reason that you get out of church. If you do, and I'm praying that you don't, but I'm preaching to you like you're about to leave tomorrow. Because some of you might have that, that mentality of, uh, of this. I wonder what I could be once I get out of church. I wonder what, I, what my life will be like without God. That's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing because of how bad it can go. And it's a fearful thing because of how good it can go. And both are delusional. But then there's people like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi who had her issues but got over it. And I love it. Nestled between the filth and immorality of judges and the craziness and chaos of the beginning part of 1 Samuel lies a little book called Ruth, a love story. But a man who loved God and a woman who was from a Gentile background who came to love God. And God brought them together. In fact, his, his mama had been a harlot. I'm talking about Boaz's. His background was sketchy. His, his background was not, I just read about it in Joshua chapter 2 about Rahab the harlot who had a son named Boaz who married a girl named Ruth who had a boy named Obed who had a grandson named Jesse who had a great-grandson named David. Don't tell me your family's too messed up or you're too messed up for God to work in you. If he can work in Rahab the harlot, it can work in Ruth, the Moabitish woman who was an idolater at one time and changed her life forever. 
and bring in not only David, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, then don't tell me we're in a place where we can't see God do something in our day and time and, and where God can't bring revival, like God can't do something. Yeah, hey, listen, maybe the nation like Israel is not gonna have revival, but I'm telling you, you can and your family can and, and you don't have to play into the enemy's hands. You can see God's hand at work in your life. Man, this is not boring. I hope this is helping somebody here tonight to see that you don't have to play into the enemy's hands and be captive to, to your sexual perversion and, to, and captive to all kinds of other vice and lying and cheating and stealing and carousing and partying. Hey, thank God that he can save you out of that or save you from that and give you a meaningful life that will be used of him in some way. Asaph said, I sure hope somebody will learn this. I sure hope somebody will pay attention to this. Because as he's thinking about his own people, he said things like this, God has been so good. So good. He was good in Egypt. Delivered us. He was good in the wilderness. Delivered us. Good at the Red Sea. Good at the Jordan River. Good. Good at Jericho. We messed up at AI. But he got us back in the game. Good for 30 more wins. No losses. 31 and 1. I may be off on my number, but it's a pretty good record. I'm talking about the wins versus the losses. God thundered for them. God held the sun, held the earth from spinning for a little while so they'd have more daylight. Talk about daylight savings time. <laughs> God, I'm telling you tonight, God was so good. And I want to say to you, God has been so good to you. He's been good to you. He's good to put you in the family that you're in. He's good to, to put you in this church family. He's good to give you his word. Are you listening to me here tonight? He's good to give us a, a church family like this. He's been good to you. Yeah, you've been through some hard times. And yeah, things are kind of crazy. But don't forget this. He's still good and he's still doing good. Yet, they thumbed their nose at God and did their own thing again. Can you believe this? Yes, I can. Because I know how I am as well. That even though God had invested such good in me through Sunday school teachers and through a youth pastor who loved me, I still chose secretly my own way and deviated from God's. And yet God still loved me. How bad did it get? It got bad enough that God forsook Shiloh. Shiloh was the temporary resting place of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, congregation of the Lord, where they would meet, gather, sacrifice, worship, feast, festivals, Passover, Pentecost, as we know it, Day of Atonement. All those feasts is where they were supposed to gather, but here's what happened. It was set up about 30 miles from Jerusalem. It 
in the place that God said. But sadly, the first time Shiloh is mentioned in the book of Judges comes late in chapter 18. You think of place of such significance, it would have been mentioned in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and etc. Because they're supposed to go there every year to do these yearly feasts. Three of them. And yet it's not mentioned until chapter 18 in the context of Micah, the false priest. Shiloh. Shiloh. The other time it's mentioned is in chapter 21 where the Benjamites didn't have wives and they needed wives. And the men had said, we won't give you our daughters. But, you know, Jabesh Gilead, they weren't here. So let's give them, let's give you their daughters. Everybody follow that? The abuse and misuse of women comes when you begin to slide a society away from God. So they took 400 young women and gave them, and they met in a place called Shiloh, same Shiloh. And it says this about Shiloh, land of Canaan. Some of you caught that. That it refers to Shiloh as the land of Canaan is quite an indictment. It'd be like saying this, Southwest Baptist Church, a contemporary church that's rocking out. We'd say, uh-uh. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not one of those Emergent churches. No, we take issue with that. But here it was, Shiloh land of Canaan. If you didn't catch it, it's a little bit of an indictment saying they had become even at Shiloh much more like the world than they were like the place that God had established. You need more proof? Well, to, to finish out the 200 remaining that needed still a wife, they concocted this plan in Shiloh that when the people came for the feast that the women would come and they would dance in Shiloh. Now you look at the three feasts that are mentioned that are the Feast of Israel and there's no mention of dancing women. So evidently they took something from the culture, the worship services from around them and made it part of their worship service. In fact, they, they were to hide down, hunker down in the vineyards wonder what they make in vineyards. Grapes. And then those grapes turned into fermented wine. I fully believe that what was going on there was drunken immorality and who knows what. In Shiloh. The shame in Shiloh. You know what was happening? Hang on. Choice by choice. They were playing into the enemy's hand. Women were abducted in Shiloh. A ray of hope. Elkanah, Hannah. They had their issues. But they came yearly to worship in Shiloh. But also at Shiloh were two priests. Hophni and Phineas, who might as well have been at the Canaanite cultish God's place because they misused their position for themselves and they lay in fornication with women that came to the tabernacle at Shiloh. 
And when they had the attack of the Philistines, they thought, let's get the ark. God will come through for us again. Let's go to Shiloh. Took the ark. And they were sorely defeated. Hophni and Phinehas died. Eli, waiting to hear news, fell backwards and died. As I've already mentioned, Phinehas' wife died following childbirth, but had enough breath to say, call him Ichabod, meaning no glory is in Israel. Because we've got to the place where we don't know God's presence anymore. It's a sad place in your life when God is present, but you don't know His presence. I've basically tried to present tonight the case that Israel needed a revival. To say also that our country needs a revival. To say that I pray God keeps our church in a state of perpetual revival. What is revival? Revival is when we're aware of and enjoying the presence of God. And you need revival when you no longer see the glory of His presence. Because you've played choice by choice into the hand of the enemy and you're no longer aware of the hand of God. Well, I'm glad that it doesn't end right there. That'd be a rather depressing point at which to leave this service. The next two words are pretty powerful. Then, the next three words. Then, the Lord. Then the Lord. Then the Lord came through. Then the Lord awoke as a man out of his sleep. I've I've done that. You woke up like, where are they at? Right? A man of full strength. I mean, it's, it's, it's God battle, war, battle ready. No, in fact, what, he, what it's saying here is he's not affected by alcohol because God would not be. Soldiers ought not be if they're going to function well. And soldiers can't be uh, affected by sleep if they're going to function well. And so what it's saying here is basically this. God moved on behalf of those that didn't even want to move on their own behalf. God awoke, not that he had snoozed or was snoozing or that he slept. He can't sleep. 
He never sleeps. He's always available for us. But the, the analogy is this, is that just in the nick of time, when everything was bleak and the ark was hauled off and the enemy said, now we've won, then God began to work behind the scenes and, and began to work in a little boy. Hey, listen, where does revival begin? Hey, you know what? It may start right here with these young men that would be young men that would say, I don't want to be a man after my own heart. I want to be a man that God can use and God could raise up some young man here that could start a great revival across this land because God was able to use Samuel and Samuel was able to be used in the life of Saul who didn't turn out so hot. And then David was used of God. I'm telling you, our God's hands are not tied when man is playing into the hands of the enemy. He's still free and I think he's awake and I know, no, no, I don't think I know he's awake and he's at work and we get to see him work as he's making some deliverances here and we just get to Stan, I'm so excited. I don't know if I've ever been as excited to be in the Christian life than right now, at this time, this day, this hour. Is it intimidating as Goliath stands there and taunting Israel? Sure it is, but what a great time to live. See some giants fall. Not because of us, but because of him. You come to me with sticks and stones. Goliath said, David said, I come to you in the name of the Lord. When a nation needs revival, they become aware of God's presence and they get back under his presence and they get a glimpse of his glory. That's it. Just a glimpse will do us, but I think once you get a glimpse, you'll want more. Don't play into the hands of the enemy. And if you have, he can set you free. Let's stand together here tonight. Our great God, I pray earnestly that you would please send revival. I'd love to see it in Oklahoma City. I'd love to see it in our state. I'd love to see it in our nation. I know that you can do that, dear God. But Lord, I just pray that we would see it right here in Southwest Baptist Church. I want to see it in the life of my life and the life of our family and the lives of the families and the people, the individuals represented here tonight. Lord, help us to see where our individual choices are leading us and what being under your authority looks like, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing tonight, page 489.